In a shocking twist, the Utah Jazz lost a second consecutive game to the Minnesota Timberwolves last night. Um, and I don't really know what to do with this information, so I'm going to talk about it for a little bit. And then we are going to segue into a discussion about, surprisingly, the most valuable player in basketball. Um, and kind of how the discourse surrounding that is usually very clearly defined. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to change the way we speak about that particular award and indeed the way that we speak about players in general, okay? So the game last night, a uh, total rock fight. I wish I had done anything with my time except for watch it. At one point during the second and third quarter, the Jazz go one for 22 from three-point land. Uh, it was kind of unbearable to watch. Most of those looks were wide open. Jordan Clarkson goes five for 20. Joe Ingles goes three for 14. Boyan Bogdanovich goes one for 11. Who's not pretty. Um, the very end of the game, Conley hits a huge three to put the Jazz up. Him and Gobert kind of blow a defensive assignment, give a wide-open layup to D'Angelo Russell, who hits the game-winning layup. Uh, the Jazz final possession, Conley kind of bumbles around. Ricky Rubio pokes it out. That's the game, right? And, and a lot of Jazz fans are mad, and they're going, how are we losing to the Timberwolves? What does this mean? Are we championship contenders? All the questions that we're continually asking that we don't really need to because they will be solved within about a month. Um... A general rule of thumb when it comes to jazz basketball, it's not a good sign when George Nying, the, the mini man himself, is your best energy guy. He comes out, he scores 14 points, he cans four threes, <laughs> and in a very uh, dark and sobering moment, kind of started bleeding everywhere in the fourth quarter, which led to a realization for me, which is probably my worst nightmare is what Joe Ingles had to go through in the fourth quarter. He's shooting free throws, the pressure's on, the jazz are down, they need the points. He catches the ball from the referee, and he's like getting ready to shoot him, and he looks down, and George Nying's blood is there upon the basketball. The minivan leaking all over the court, all over the ball. He calls over the ref. He's like, I, I don't know what to do with this. Do I shoot it? Do we continue playing? Do we burn this? Do we forget that this game ever happened? I don't know any of these answers. So the ref takes it over to Guy. He scrubs it off with some cleaning solution. They give him the ball back with George Nying's blood removed not that long ago. Um, and this was, that's a great synopsis of the game. George Nyang, probably the best player for the Jazz, bled all over the court. That's, that's a takeaway from the game that you should. Uh, a lot of interesting stats came from last night's game as well. One is very strange for the Minnesota Timberwolves. It's the first time this entire season, we're over 60 games in, that they won back-to-back -back games. Kind of an unfathomable stat, but speaks to how bad this franchise has been this particular season. Another one that is very interesting and this comes from a Zach Cram tweet. Maybe the strangest set of stats this NBA season. Jazz versus Timberwolves, 0-3. Jazz versus everyone else, 44-14. Timberwolves versus Jazz, 3-0. Timberwolves versus everyone else, 15-44. So, really hard to wrap your head around those numbers. The Timberwolves about as bad as a team has played this or this year in basketball, and the Jazz about as good as a team has played, and yet when they've gone head-to-head, -head, the Timberwolves have won three times and the Jazz have not. At the same time, as we look to extrapolate meaning from individual games, and in this case from this three-game sample size, um, a lot of talk coming out of the game last night, okay, well, what have the Timberwolves figured out? Uh, is there things that other playoff teams can glean from how they're playing the Jazz? Why is the Jazz offense struggling versus what the Timberwolves are doing defensively, especially a Timberwolves team that is very bad defensively? Um, 
And I, as a person who's watched the last two games and honestly can't really remember the first one, I, I can't envision a lot to be taken away. Last night's game, more than anything, it just boiled down to the Jazz missing wide open three-pointer after wide open three-pointer after wide open three-pointer. And it got to the point, and this is something I've spoke about before this year, when you build your entire offense around the three-point shot, it is a very fickle creature. And there are going to be games, and hopefully not playoff series, but sometimes playoff series, that are simply decided because the shooters that were wide open did not consistently make the shots in a way that they normally do. And last night is a very good reminder, like, it, it's super frustrating to watch. I hated it, again, as I was watching the whole time. I go, man, how are all these good shooters missing wide open threes? But it's a reminder that come playoff time, there will most assuredly be games that are decided not in the Jazz favor simply because they have a one for 22 stretch from three or simply because they shoot 57 three-pointers and only make 15 or 16 of them like they did last night. That's just how it works when you build your entire team's identity upon shooting the three-point shot. So that's from last night. And again, it's one regular season game. The Suns unfortunately beat the Knicks, which means they're now a game back of Utah for the one seed. All of those things are not ideal for Utah. However, when you're just treating it as one individual regular season game, doesn't mean that much in the grand scheme of things, except for the fact that we realized George Nying can literally leak all over the floor at one point, okay? The much more interesting discussion comes in an article that came out also yesterday on The Athletic from Tony Jones and Seth Partnow uh, in conjunction with one another. And they write about Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert and the MVP cases for and against both of those players, okay? And I want to preface this whole discussion uh, around my own opinion, which is neither of those players are the most valuable player in basketball this season. However, I am always interested in making a discussion around either an award or how a team or player is playing. I'm always interested in opening the discussion into areas that we have not opened them to in the past. So for the MVP, that's usually a very clearly defined award won by players with very similar skill sets. And there is very rarely room for discussion to begin with for other types of players. And really, once you get down to voting time, there's definitely not room for more unique styles of play and players to be eligible and to be talked about for that award. So that's what I want to concentrate on for the second half of my talking points today, okay? Donovan Mitchell. We know that he has improved greatly every single season. This is his best season yet. Unfortunately, he's been sitting out the last few games with an ankle sprain, but he'll be back shortly. He's averaging 26 points per game, five assists per game, four rebounds per game, okay? All good stats. Uh, he's currently efficient on a high volume, which is usually one of the things that people really love leaning into as an MVP talking point. And a very interesting stat also that's, that comes from this article. There have been 15 such cases of players averaging at least 26 points and five assists per game for the team with the best record in the NBA. 13 guys won the award. 13 out of 15. Very interesting, okay? And again, that's just an interesting stat. That's not me sitting here going, this is the reason why Donovan Mitchell should win the MVP. I don't believe that's true. And, and honestly, like, there are a lot better volume and efficient scores in the NBA currently that would be more deserving of the award. Uh, Dame Lillard and Steph Curry are the two who immediately come to mind. Rudy Gobert. 
who is the person in the context of what I want to talk about, he's the person that is much more interesting to discuss. Because Rudy Gobert, his entire game is built around impact rather than raw statistics. He's not going to have that volume scoring. He's really not going to have a lot of volume anything except for rebounding and blocks. Two stats that we don't really ever look at as great indicators of a most valuable player. So you have to go deeper and you have to look into impact and what Rudy Gobert is to the Jazz, what he means when he's on the floor to that team, and what does it mean when an entire team's defensive identity, a really good defense, is structured around one player and sometimes how do you go about quantifying that particular thing. So some of the stats that come from this article that I found to be very interesting. Rudy Gobert on the court with the Utah Jazz, Per 100 possessions, the Jazz outscore the opposition by 16 points. Awesome, 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 awesome rate of, of scoring. Um, when he's off the court, the Jazz, again, per 100 possessions, they're outscored by two points. So you see an enormous gap when Rudy Gobert is on the floor versus when he is off the floor. And that speaks to what I see when I watch Rudy Gobert, which again, it's a lot harder to pick up in terms of how easy it is to watch Donovan Mitchell. I see him dunk. I see him create assists for others. I see him can really sweet pull-up threes. And that's really easy for anybody to pick up on, including myself. Gobert, it's more around impact. Uh, and it's more around watching an entire game and going, hmm, this is interesting. That other team, they, they struggled to score. And the vast majority of that happened when Rudy Gobert was on the floor. What does that mean? And then you watch that happen every single game over the course of time. And you go, okay. That's a pretty clear indicator that this guy is the fulcrum of that defense that is really good. Then you watch it happen over the past few years, like we've watched with Gobert, and you go, all right, this is a lot easier to contextualize how valuable this player is to this team. And indeed, now we can start talking about that style of value relative to the things that most casual fans normally value, which is the offensive side of, of basketball, right? Some other stats for Gobert that come from the article. Uh, league leader in total rebounds, second in blocks per game. He contests the highest proportion of opponent shots at the rim than any big man in the NBA. He also holds opponents to the fourth lowest percentage among players with significant minutes. Okay, So all of these things speak to what I'm talking about. Uh, he has impact consistently. That's tied into the defensive side of the ball. So this is where the discussion gets very interesting for somebody like me who always wants to open doors when we talk about players and teams and go, why can't we talk about this player? Just because we haven't talked about this style of player in the past doesn't mean that has to be the case moving forward. Just because we haven't talked about this style of team in the past doesn't mean that has to be the case moving forward. Uh, so Rudy Gobert, as an MVP candidate, very unorthodox, especially compared to historical precedent. But I look at it and I go, logically speaking, it's a similar concept to how Steve Nash won multiple MVPs. It's a similar concept to how Allen Iverson won an MVP. Uh, Allen Iverson, an offense unto himself. You know, he was the entire fulcrum of the Philadelphia 76ers offense. He was not very efficient, but he was as high volume of a score as he could possibly find. And they built their entire offense around his ability to score the basketball. And he won an MVP, right? And that was a lot easier to understand and identify because we, we gravitate towards offense in a way that we don't with defense. Um, Steve Nash, the same thing. He wasn't volume. He was efficient. And he kind of jump-started this offensive revolution that I spoke on a prior No Baller segment uh, concerning Mike D'Antoni and how 
the pace and space suns, the seven seconds or less suns, they revolutionized what basketball would become a decade later. And Steve Nash was the fulcrum of that. Um, he turned this offensive system uh, into something that no other team had. And, and he was the focal point of that. He ran, he passed, he set up people, he scored himself. And, and we all agreed that he was the MVP at the end of two different regular seasons because of that very thing. Now, we're also talking about two players in Nash and Iverson who are complete zeros on the defensive side of the ball. And we didn't really care about that. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, because again, I think both those players are great in their own right. But I do find it very interesting in the ways that we discuss MVP candidates and who is eligible and who should be eligible. And when we're trying to build a case for certain people that might not be candidates that jump off the page, I'm continually kind of bummed out in the way that defense is immediately pushed to the side. Defense, it's it's half of basketball. It's just as valuable to continually stop the opposing team from scoring as it is for you and your own team to score. So I see a player like Rudy Gobert, who is a defense unto himself. He's proven that for years. He's playing at a level that is as good as anything we've seen from him defensively. And again, this is not a one-off season. This is, he has set a precedent over the course of years and years and years that this is what he is as a player. This is how valuable he is as a defender. And it would be unorthodox to include someone like that in the conversation, but I wish that there was more opportunity to do things along those lines. I want to read to you a quote from this article, this uh, athletic article from Seth Partnow and from Tony Jones when it comes to Rudy Gobert. Gobert is looked upon as a good regular season player and a great defender who can be schemed against in a playoff setting. Whether that is right or wrong, that's the narrative and that's his reputation. If Gobert dominates the playoffs and plays next season to his current level, he may find himself attracting more buzz around this time next year. But he's got to do it. He's got to not just be good in the playoffs, he needs to be the same guy in the playoffs that he has been in this regular season. The Jazz need to make a run on his back his and Mitchell's back. If that happens, the door to an MVP discussion may be a little more ajar and people may be a little more accepting of his unique skill, end quote. So this is my least favorite way of thinking. And this is me reading between the lines of this paragraph. And this is a, a common refrain that I hear when we talk about sports. It's a very common refrain when I speak with individual fans and not necessarily people who cover uh, sports, but it also applies to them as well. And, and it's the idea that a player or a team can only be legitimized retroactively. Once we have all of the information that this player is legitimate, usually that comes with playoff success as spoken about in this paragraph. Only then do we go back and go, you know what? This player is actually damn good. And wow, that's very impressive what this person has been doing for years and years. Dirk Nowitzki comes to mind as a player who rode that. Uh, we talked about how good he was at the start of his career. He won the MVP. They fizzled out in the 2006 finals against the Mavericks. And, and slowly but surely, we kind of turned against Dirk and went, he's, I mean, his stats are great. And he is kind of an offense unto himself, but he can't win and all that kind of stuff. And then... They beat the Heat in LeBron's first year there. And as soon as that happened, we go, Dirk's an all-time player. And how incredible has his entire career been up to this point? Look at all these seasons in the past, and we can go down these stats, and wow, look at all these great playoffs he had, even when they didn't win. And it took 
Dirk actually winning a championship for us to legitimize his career, which again is my least favorite line of thinking. Uh, it drives me up a wall and it's something I continually get in arguments with when, I, when I'm around other fans. Uh, it's not hard to understand value and how good a player in a team is in a moment. Now there is nuance within those things. Is, is this line this much, or is this team this much more of a contender than this team? Or is this player this much better than this team? There's a lot of nuance that goes into those things. But when you see something happen, especially over the course of years and years, as we've seen with Gobert, when it comes to his defensive impact on the floor, and I read a paragraph that's saying, uh, yeah, there's an interesting unorthodox case to be built for how valuable Rudy Gobert is. However, that could only be realized if we see him have success in the playoffs. And then the following season, we would be able to more clearly identify how valuable this player is to this team. That's a line of logic that I can't ever get behind and one that I will continually fight back against because I think it's actually pretty damn easy to understand the impact of a player like Rudy Gobert because we've seen it over the course of years and years. It's pretty damn easy to understand the impact of Dirk Nowitzki before he's won a championship. I mean, you can go across sports and in the very recent past, look at a bunch of teams and players that were only legitimized after the fact. The Tampa Bay Lightning last year winning the Stanley Cup, the most talented team in hockey for years and years that we all agreed was incredible, but we enjoyed making fun of because they hadn't won. Then they did last year and we go, this is a really incredible five-year run for the most talented team in hockey. Um, Peyton Manning comes to mind as a football player. The Golden State Warriors is a basketball team. I've said this multiple times within this segment. The narrative around that team was this is a jump shooting team that cannot win. And then they won. And we said, wow, that was an incredible season. And look at this stretch that Clay Thompson and Steph Curry have had. They were legitimized retroactively. And very few people in the moment were willing to engage with the idea that, damn, this team is really, really, really good. And they don't necessarily have to win in order for me to comprehend that. So I'll tie a bow on all this with a final thought. Um, who belongs in the MVP discussion? Will there ever be room for a defense first player in the discussion? How can past or future playoff performance factor into a regular season award? And most importantly, something that I want everybody who listens to me talk about sports, something that I want them to be cognizant of. How can we watch a player or team perform at a high level for multiple years, yet refuse to acknowledge it until a certain amount of postseason success is reached.